Today is June 23rd, and I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded our 10th episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 7.30 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Today's webinar was moderated by myself and Dave Nikolai. On the webinar were guests Jeff Coulter, Extension Corn Agronomist, Seth Nave, Extension Soybean Agronomist, and Vasu Sharma, Irrigation Water Management and Water Quality Specialist, all with the University of Minnesota St. Paul. The guests and moderator discussed the hot and dry conditions and its impact on crop growth, development, and management. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on the current crop situation as well as crop and pest management topics. Well, um, at a very high level, I think the, the key point here is that, you know, soybean is just, um, is, is moving along. I think we're, we're really, this stress at this time of year is really, has a minor impact on overall yield levels. I think at the, again, at a very high level, what's happening is mostly that plant is, is basically slowing up a little bit above ground. Um, but there's a lot going on down below, and uh, the soybeans are putting a lot of energy into root um, expansion and, and exploration down into the, into the, into the profile. Um, and so there's, they're tapping into moisture that's down there deep. So, um, you know, it's, the, the soybean is naturally conserving moisture. It knows that, uh, that it's dry, and so it's kind of clipped up, uh, shortened up its, its leaf expansion and putting that energy into the root. So, uh, and even that's not all bad for the soybean crop overall. And we do know that um, from a lot of research that once we do get rains again, the soybean was gonna, is gonna snap back and do really well. So it's not a permanent um, uh, setback, uh, but we are gonna have to have good rainfall going forward in order to replenish that profile and, and, uh, and, and do really well. So I think that's gonna be a theme for today is, is what, you know, what, what do we get going forward? Uh, but certainly there isn't really significant yield loss out there yet. Um, soybean really is very, very tolerant of early season stresses like all stresses. Uh, and, and, and this is an example of one that uh, it'll really come back uh, quite well from once we do get rainfall. Seth, uh, one to, of the, excuse me. Well, just to concur there, I, one of our sites, I was looking at some early soybeans um, and, and, and you're, you're right on with the, the size was amazingly small. I mean, they looked like they had just cracked, but they actually had unifoliates forming and, uh, and were, were very, very tiny. I'd, I'd never seen, generally they're a lot larger at that size when you start to see, see that stage of development. One thing I do want to mention uh, for folks that might have questions, uh, again, hover over the, the bottom of your screen. Uh, there's a Q&A window. Uh, if something comes to mind or you've got a burning question, please type that into the chat uh, or question and answer box there, and, uh, and we'll try to address that with our speakers as we move forward here. But kind of keeping moving along, uh, at least in the order on my screen, uh, next up, uh, Jeff Bolter, our uh, corn systems agronomist uh, at the University of Minnesota. Uh, Jeff, what's the prognosis for corn? Yeah, well, for corn, it's really interesting to, you know, look across the countryside and pick out those spots of the fields where the corn is rolling. And that's clearly an indication of drought stress. Uh, and that rolling is a function of, it's a natural uh, plant 
defense mechanism. The plant is trying to reduce water loss. So in plants, they've got little holes in the leaves called stomata, and those little holes are open, uh, so that open up so that the plant can get carbon dioxide from the atmosphere for photosynthesis. But when those holes are open, uh, the plant loses water to the atmosphere through transpiration. And when the plant is losing water faster than it can take it up from the soil, uh, then the plant senses that and it starts to roll the leaves uh, to reduce the amount of leaf area that's exposed and to also create a, a zone there in the leaf that's uh, higher humidity uh, so that the water loss isn't going to be so great. Um, you know, parts of the fields that are rolling earlier in the morning are under higher drought stress than those that begin rolling in the late morning or in the afternoon. If we just have a little bit of leaf rolling in the afternoon, that's not such a concern. But if plants are rolled up right at in early in the morning, that's an indication that that area is under uh, pretty severe stress. Uh, this can be complicated by a few things. Um, for example, if we don't have a good root system, that's going to further complicate this drought stress. Uh, this year in areas that are dry now, some of those fields don't have a good nodal root system established because the nodal roots set at about three quarters of an inch below the soil surface. And if that, air, if that zone of the soil is dry, it's difficult for the roots to get established. Uh, and especially if that dry soil is also loose, uh, which can happen with uh, tillage on dry soils. So in, in fields where nodal root are not established as well as we would like. We can identify these fields by, you know, seeing plants that are starting to lean. It won't be every plant, but, you know, maybe 5% or less of the plants are leaning uh, to the side, and that's an indication that they don't have a great nodal root establishment. But uh, if we get some rain, those nodal roots can uh, reestablish and the plants can recover to some degree. Uh, in corn, uh, the number of rows per year is set between V5 and V8. That's mainly a function of genetics and lesser of a degree from the growing environment. So um, that's not as affected by drought as much as the potential ear size. Uh, the number of potential kernels per row is set between about V5 and V15, and that's strongly influenced by the growing environment. However, we generally have uh, way more potential kernels than are, than are actually set. So if we lose some of them, it's not, a, it's not a huge loss because the actual number of kernels per row is determined by the success of pollination and the ability of those kernels to be retained uh, following the pollination. Uh, the data that's out there that's from research that's been done, looked at drought stress on corn has indicated that if we've got some drought stress occurring prior to about the V13 stage, the effect on yield is going to be relatively small. Uh, in, many, in some cases, it won't be significantly diff different from zero. Um, and, but it depends you know, on the level of the stress. If we've got plants that are rolling early in the morning, it's likely that they're going to you know, have a little bit of a yield loss. Uh, as we move closer to the B13 stage, which will be about one week from now, then we can expect uh, some noticeable yield loss to be occurring from each day of drought stress. And as we get closer to silking, uh, that drought stress is going to have a greater effect on yield. In corn, the critical period for yield determination is really about 10 days before silking and 
through 14 days after silking. And this year, a lot of the corn is going to be silking around July 14. That's about eight days ahead of normal. And based on that, the entire month of July essentially is going to be a critical period for corn. So uh, if we can uh, you know, get adequate moisture during this time um, and have those plants not being under uh, a lot of drought stress during the month of July, I think we have very good yield potential yet, even in fields that have uh, showing drought stress up to this point. All right. So it sounds like Jeff, uh, July is going to be a month we're going to need it to rain more than normal. Um, I, I want to kind of move to our third guest here, uh, Basu Sharma. She has not been on the Field Notes program before, uh, but she's uh, our irrigation uh, specialist with the University of Minnesota. So welcome, Basu. Oh. Are you on mute? We cannot hear Basu. We're still not hearing her. So we'll hold on that for a second. We'll try to get that figured out, Basu, and then we'll welcome you back on to, to give some comments. Um, again, uh, very in tune with crop water needs as well as uh, you know supplemental irrigation and water management to, to help those along. On, for folks that uh, that have that option to irrigate uh, in the states, so uh, once we get her sound figured out, we'll have her uh, uh, give her kind of insights on things. We did have a couple of questions come into the Q and A box. Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, first off, here uh, as far as uh, hybrids, and this is going to be probably a question for Jeff here. Um, looking at uh, contemporary hybrids versus some of these drought tolerant products that are now available on the market, you know, how much of a difference do those uh, sort of, uh, of hybrids make in terms of their, their need for water or maybe their ability to withstand the droughty conditions? Yeah, uh, we did some research comparing a drought tolerant hybrid versus a standard hybrid under different drought stress regimes a few years ago. And one of, one of our treatments was moderate sustained drought stress from V14 all the way through maturity. And V14 is about two weeks before silking. We also had a treatment that where we stressed the plants every day from about R2 or the blister stage to maturity. And what we found is that uh, under well watered condi conditions or when we had stress from the blister stage to maturity, there was no difference in yield between the standard hybrid and a drought tolerant hybrid. But when we had stress from about uh, V14 all the way through maturity, the uh, drought tolerant hybrid yielded 13 bushels per acre more. Um, so there are differences in hybrids. Um, and some of the other data that I've saw out there has shown that the drought tolerant hybrids are beneficial in drought tolerant or in drought conditions. But, you know, it varies, um, it depends on the severity of the drought and when it occurs, all this stuff, what the yield level was, if the yield level is 100 bushels an acre, or if we're talking 200 bushels an acre. So it varies, but generally I'm uh, favorable for drought tolerant hybrids. Yeah, it sounds like they could be a valuable uh, decision or, or tool here as we head into July, uh, given what you've said so far, Jeff. Um, we've got a question here coming in from Doug. Um, he's wondering about variety that doesn't roll much uh, as far as the leaves rolling up, but is that a bad situation? Uh, or, or 
maybe it's just Doug's environment. Uh, maybe his soil is providing adequate moisture and you're not seeing rolling yet. I don't know. Uh, Jeff, do you want to take that one? Yeah, well, it's interesting when one is driving, uh, you know, and on one side of the road, the corn is rolling and on the other side, the corn is not rolling. In that situation, it might be something related to the roots and, you know, tillage and that kind of stuff that has enabled the root development to be better and for one field rather than the other. But, you know, if you've got a hybrid trial where two hybrids are planted next to each other and one is rolling and the other is not, you know, uh, that rolling is a, a natural defense mechanism to protect against water loss. Um, and I would think that, you know, a hybrid that would be showing some rolling may be preferable to one that isn't rolling um, because that rolling is a way to conserve moisture. Okay, excellent. Uh, we're gonna switch back to- Okay, we're gonna switch back. We have some audio things here, but uh, Seth Nave, can you hear me okay? I can. All right, great, you're like next door. So there's been some comments, Seth, about soybeans in this uh, longer days right now, a little bit drier weather that people have observed early flowering, depending upon when these soybeans are planted. Do you wanna talk a little bit about um, what may happen here to uh, crop soybean architecture, canopy and so forth with this continued dry weather, if we're not getting a lot of you know, <clears throat> vegetative growth at this point, but if we ex uh, have some of these plants exhibit this flowering here, um, are, are we going to be uh, stuck with smaller soybeans, so to speak, as we go through and, and affect yeah. the yield or uh, with rain coming down theoretically on that? Uh, or what are some of the pros and cons here that might happen? Okay, a couple of key points on flowering is that we're, I think farmers are overly fixated on flowering, timing and soybean. Um, it is really important when we start reading herbicide labels and other labels, we need to know when we hit R1. That's important for those particular reasons. Um, but our indeterminate soybeans that we grow here, um, flowering is really relatively unimportant in the big picture. Um, it's just the initiation of flowering because we are growing these soybeans in um, these indeterminate soybeans, they continue to put on vegetative growth throughout flowering. They're gonna to continue to flower. Um, and so I wouldn't, the, the start of flowering is really, really relatively unimportant uh, in, in terms of the overall yield and, and even how the plant develops. Um, I would note that, that we're hitting, <laughs> an important point is that you know, there's an over, again, an over fixation on soybean as a, as a photo dependent, uh, you know, a day length dependent plant. And uh, honestly, we're really driven. It shows this year that uh, how much of it's driven really by temperature. So temperature plays a big role with day length to drive um, development in soybeans. And you, you get a lot of heat units in a year like this, and you were going to put on flowers early. And it, um, you know, I think we get a lot of press from Iowa and further south where folks are really like to see can full canopy by R1. Uh, we just don't get that in Minnesota and, and it's fine. Uh, we just need to continue to put on more leaves in a normal year uh, and put on more vegetative growth. So eventually we, we do want these nice tall soybeans to show up out there, um, but we're just going to have an extended flowering period this year for sure. I think maybe Vasu's uh, back on audio. Ryan, do you want to re-ask your question uh, from her, for her? 
Yeah, Vasu, are you on? Can you hear me? Yeah, you're on. We can okay. hear you well. Hi, Vasu. Would you want to give a little um, take on uh, on the drought and hot conditions currently? Yeah. So, talking about water, you know, at this point, as Jeff and uh, Seth has mentioned, uh, we are in the early stages. Uh, the drought stress has more impact on yield when we are, you know, close to the transition phase from vegetation to reproductive growth. And same for water. At this point, water is critical, but, you know, we can go as low as 70% of, of depletion at this point, both for soybean and uh, corn in terms of uh, water uptake. So if your soil profile is not 100% full to up to field capacity, that's, that's not a, a, a critical point at this point because crop water use is not that high at this point. Uh, for, for corn, it's around 0.1 to 0.12 inches per day of, of crop evapotranspiration, which is crop water use, and same for around 0.15 inches per day for soybeans. And as long as we have enough moisture uh, in the profile, and, and when I say profile, it's the root depth. So it's not just top six inches. You see, you go out in the field, the top six inches is really dry. But as you go deep, there is some moisture that a crop can still sustain uh, with that much moisture in this stage. But as we move forward, we do we do need rain. We do need moisture because that's when the evapotranspiration demands go high uh, and crop really needs water for transpiration. So, so that's my take on, on at this point, uh, for example, if we talk about central Minnesota, the soils are coarse and fine sands and loamy sands. So the soil water holding capacity is between 0.75 to 1 point inches uh, per foot. Uh, but, you know, if we use all of that water, we are, it's not good. So at this point, I think we are good. But as we move forward, we need that moisture to sustain our crop. So Vasu, from a from an irrigator standpoint, I know I've I've read some things you put out with uh, management, and some some maybe uh, we can put a link in there with some of the resources on um, if if we're now in the season where demand from the crop isn't so high, we should be a little judicious maybe about using irrigation or more judicious because uh, there's some potential concerns maybe with. Uh, depletion of some of the water to do irrigation with? Is that, is that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. At this time, I think we have room for some cautious use. Uh, as I said, we can go as low as 70%, 60 to 70% in terms of depletion. So the best thing is to monitor that soil moisture at this point. Uh, we have, as you said, we have tons of resources on our extension website and we can share with, uh, with the audience. How to, how to measure or how to estimate that soil moisture. So this is the best time to use that. And many research throughout the United States, mostly in the Western states where we have more drier uh, climate, it shows that like through nine years of research, it has been seen that uh, during the vegetative uh, growth period and particularly corn uh, before tasseling, if we don't irrigate at all, still crop sustains in those Western states without any yield impact, without very... Uh, significantly low yield impact. So that's something that we can also try here, which is also known as de deficit irrigation. So maybe using that water very cautiously in this these time period is, is, is the key. Okay, excellent. We'll, uh, we'll try to get some of those links posted in the chat box um, uh, so that the folks can refer to those if, if they would like. Uh, but thanks for that take. Uh, 
going back, we do have some questions here and I see someone posted email addresses in that chat box. So again, if you do have particular questions, feel free to reach out to any of, any of the folks on today. Um, we did a question here about Seth, uh, address the effect of multiple stresses. So heat, sandblasting, water deficits, post-emergent herbicide injury, SCN, et cetera. So as we pile on all of these stresses, uh, what do we need to be concerned with, with growth and development? Actually, that's a really good question because um, I think we talk about multiple stresses a lot of times as agronomists and we make a big deal. We wave our hands about it a lot. And in the end, sometimes it doesn't make much sense or doesn't make a lot of, a, it doesn't have a lot of effect because we end up having a good growing condition that basically covers up for a lot of our problems. This year might be very different in that uh, anything that really slows up that top growth um, early on uh, sandblasting or some other things, if we really reduce photosynthesis early on, that reduces the amount of photosynthate that's available to go down to the root to, for more root exploration. You know, you could have two similar looking plants, but one has a deep root and it's in a much better position. And I think that's probably what some people are seeing in the corn too. It's relative to allocation towards the root um and um different different uh soybeans or different effects if they've been nailed by some herbicide carryover or some contact herbicides or drifts you know that is going to reduce the amount of photosynthate that's available to shuttle down to the root and the tops may look very similar um but but if they have a different root structure they're going to respond very differently you know as i mentioned those those normal plants and that are just simply drought stressed, they may be very small with very small leaves, but again, they're putting down a big root. So underneath, they may be in a good position. On the other hand, some of these really stressed plants may look a little tough on top of small leaves and have a small root too. And those are gonna be, once things turn around, they may not come back the same way. So I think there's a lot of hidden things and there's going to be stuff showing up later that uh, we're not aware of. I think a lot of these plants are coping with this really quite well this year and we may not even be seeing the soil type differences in fields we'd expect, but those may show up, end up showing up later. You know, yeah, Seth, there was a, there's a quick follow-up question back to, you know, we talked about the flowering in, in the canopy, but uh, one of the questions came in is what if, if the soybeans aren't shading as well this year is there anything else to watch for uh in in terms of that i mean obviously you know i can think of weeds you know in that situation but anything else that you want to comment about on soybean growth and development if we're not getting uh the row closure that we're used to well i would just from a yield standpoint we you know that just demonstrates if if we don't close rows that shows that we're we've got a lost opportunity to collect a light later on so if if this drought does linger and the the soybeans do stay small all the way through and we never close row, rows that's a clear indication that we're just not going to have there's no potential to have maximum yields if we're not able to collect all the light available um, during during seed filling so we need to collect as much light as we can uh, but the the issue right now that farmers are a little bit concerned that they're not collecting as much light because the soybeans are small but they're always a little bit small this year and we're not going to be collecting all the light so if we if we're losing you know 10 15 20 percent of that light interception right now it's not a big deal 
but we do need that rain to push that canopy so that we can collect the light later when we're still filling seeds. So again, it's all, all towards the future. We need to be positioned to capture that light later, um, but uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll get that rain. So a question here, it's, it's directed towards corn, but it, and it's about fungicide decisions on corn in particular. Maybe both, uh, both Jeff and Seth could address this, uh, given the kind of current year and environment. Um, talk a little bit about fungicide considerations in corn and soybeans. Again, the question was directed more at corn than soybeans, but uh, you know, might as well talk about both. Yeah, great question. So uh, generally, um, you know, uh, diseases in corn tend to be more problematic in wetter and more humid environments. So if I was going to be using a fungicide, I would probably be targeting um, those fields that are showing less moisture stress than those that have that are under moisture stress. Okay, so. Another consideration may be about, uh, you know, causing additional stress on the plants, uh, either through the surfactant or whatnot. Um, we we want to try to minimize stress around silking, uh, probably especially for plants that are already under drought stress during silking. So that may be another concern. Yeah, and my feeling on soybean is that, um, you know, the, the, the fungus, from two, two points of view, I would say that we need to hold off on fungicides likely this year. Uh, one is that we're just not going to have, uh, it looks like we may not have the environment that's conducive for, um, for uh, disease in the canopy simply because it's dry, right? So, um, the, but the second piece of this is that we're not going to have a good canopy. Um, fungicides on soybeans work as fungicides. They're not plant health protectors. Uh, and that these folks that are out there selling these things um, as something that's going to protect the soybean from, from drought stress or from, from injury later, are really doing a disservice for farmers. Um, uh, it's, there's no reason to put money into a fungicide if we're not gonna have fungi in the canopy. So um, really wanna, this is one of those years where my back of the napkin recommendations for fungicide on soybean is if you don't look like you have a really big canopy and have the potential for a big crop this year, uh, like this year, this is a year to definitely hold off on that, that fungicide application. So. Um, yeah, uh, even if you purchased it or pre-purchased or pre-ordered, I think this is uh, definitely hold off on those fungicide applications. Unless things turn around in a big way in the next month uh, and we get a lot of growth and, and then we may need, to, may need to do something once we get out towards R3. There's a, a question that came in for both uh, on corn and soybean and we're talking about maybe population, but maybe more importantly, row width. Now we know, you know in Minnesota, obviously in soybeans, uh, in sugar beet area, we can have uh, 22 inch or we can drill, uh, we can have narrow rows of uh, corn. But for both of you, uh, Jeff and Seth, is there any advantage in a drought situation to row with a row with adjustment? In other words, are some people right now maybe better off with a different row with pattern than they had before? In other words, maybe narrower uh, as we go, uh, go forward as compared to something that's that's wider. Do you want to both comment about that and and a kind of a theoretical question here, an impact here uh, in hindsight, but let's go ahead. Yeah, great question. So uh, I like narrower rows for corn, particularly in drier environments. Uh, it makes sense that if the row, if the plants are spaced out better, 
that they're going to be able to access that limited soil moisture better. They're gonna be able to scavenge more of it. Um, I think the potential advantage for narrow rows is probably relatively small, even in this drier year. But uh, having said that, I think it's still bigger than if we had a, a wetter year. Um, also, I think the advantage for the narrower rows is probably a little greater if one is at a higher plant population. Um, yeah, that's my take on that. You know, I'm going to pass this to Vasu because this is a quite, we talk about evapotranspiration, but this is a point where we could actually divide the two and talk about evaporation and transpiration. And so maybe, maybe our water guru might be willing to handle this. I think it's a nice, it's a nice way to separate out those two points and maybe, maybe she can help with this a little bit. Yeah. So uh, I, <laughs> As, are we talking about the, the plant rows spacing? Yes. Yeah, well, so we row, have done row width. Yes, I guess. Row width. I have not worked on row width, but in terms of plant population, we have worked uh, in West Central Minnesota where we looked at planting populations and uh, water use. And what we have found here in Minnesota that we do not see any interaction between water use and planting population uh, in three years study. So at, at this point, my, my answer would be that planting population won't play a big role when we talk about the water use, not that big when we're talking about the drought situation here in Minnesota. So I think, uh, Dave, your question, if they are better off who have you know, higher planting population or uh, wider roles, uh, I think uh, we are in the same boat. Is that for corn or soybeans, Vasu? I'm talking about corn. So that research was three-year research on corn with different planting populations and uh, plant water use. Okay. So, but Seth, that doesn't leave you off the hook here. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's a, there, you know, we get into, I think we can get into the weeds on the, uh, the um, academic points on this pretty easily, but the, the questions really, you know, higher or narrow rows tend to reduce evaporation from the soil surface. Uh, but then you increase the amount of transpiration you get from your leaves. So you've kind of ch shifted how that water is allocated. Um, you can actually use a little bit more early on, um, but then you have, you potentially have some water savings for later with narrow rows. So, um, you know, the timing of these things, uh, and I think that's probably why the, the literature is a little bit divided on populations and row spacing. A lot of it comes down to the individual year when we're, when, aside from irrigation, but when we're in a, a dryland situation, it's, it's that time factor of the drought, not only the severity of the drought, but then how that time, how, it, how it's allocated over, over time. It's the temporal piece of it. How long is it and how, what's the duration of that drought really plays into those specific kinds of questions. Okay, good. Uh, say we are approaching the end of our program today. We've got one last question. I'm not seeing Bob or Anthony or Bruce on today, but uh, Doug's asking a question about soybean aphid and drought. And, and uh, Doug, I guess from personal experience, uh, in years where we tend to kind of dry out later in the season, not necessarily droughty conditions, we tend to see uh, bigger populations of aphids, I would say. Uh, it's those are going to be the years where I would expect to see more sprain and, and hitting some of those thresholds. Now in drought conditions, we tend to see pests shift a little bit and have bigger issues with spider mites. And so as, as the season progresses and if we stay dry, I'm sure 
with our program here, we're running weekly. We'll bring Ken on or Bob or uh, a Bruce to to kind of talk about some spider mites and and, and management of those uh, particular pests. So we'll kind of keep tuned in on that. Uh, but that if we stay really really dry, I would expect to switch insect problems from aphids more towards those spider mites. But um, we'll see how the season progresses here. Can I jump uh, I in real quick on that, Ryan? I think just for yeah. the for the listeners, I think we've had supply chain issues this year. And so I think this is a something that farmers can start to think about. And and the there's a lot of really good questions around um, what individual insecticides to use when we have combinations of spider mites and and um, and uh, aphids in fields and, and registrations now for, for insecticides are in question. So I think it's definitely something you guys need to get those folks on to talk about those, but farmers probably need to start thinking about lining up uh, some of the right products with the idea that they might need to spray some, uh, some spider mites this year. And so I think it's, it's really worthwhile to start pre-planning pre and maybe talking to the co-op and see what, what's available for this year. So Seth, I think you just planned our next week's episode here with uh, product choices and considerations, given the fact we might have two insect pests. We've got uh, difficulties with uh, the Lord's Man or Chlorpyrifos registration, where that's going to go, as well as uh, some of our insecticide resistance that's happening within the soybean aphid population. So stay tuned. I'm sure we'll uh, be addressing that issue in the future. But thanks, Seth. And thanks, everyone uh, that was out there listening today. And thanks to our guests. Again, if you've got more questions, uh, please feel to, to send those in and, and we'll uh, try to get an answer out to you. But thank you, everybody. I think we're going to um, uh, have a three question survey for those that are leaving. But before Ryan, you want to mention that this is recorded as and be available as a podcast um, in, in here in the, in the immediate future. So that's a good opportunity. And I also want to mention more about irrigation. We have an irrigation uh, page on, on the website, uh, extension website. Uh, more in depth as well as what we've been talking about. So um, uh, with that, so any other last uh, comments, Ryan, about that or the podcast? Nope, the podcast should be out later uh, later this morning. It's Again, it's just a recording of what we, we've got here today. So if someone missed it, or if you miss one of these weekly, you can always uh, jump on your favorite podcast subscription service and, and find this uh, and tune in and listen, and then uh, uh, have that for your... Again, thank you. Thank you for attending this morning. We appreciate here University of Minnesota Extension, our June 23rd uh, production of Strategic Farming uh, Field Notes program. Uh, as you leave, you'll get a three-question survey if we ask to uh, spend a couple of minutes there or shoot us an email if you have other questions as we go forward. Otherwise, we look forward to uh, meeting with you again uh, next Wednesday at this same time. Uh, so we'll be looking at June 30th, uh, starting at uh, 7.30 uh, in the morning uh, with another current uh, crops program as well. So thank you again for attending and we do appreciate uh, your attention.